yeah, I guess this is, um, God, I wish this were weird signal. This <laughs> is a, um, so yeah, I'm Lucy from Weird Signal, um, talking to Jonathan, uh, who was on Weird Signal and is a longtime friend of the pod. And, uh, basically kind of, this is a discussion from, well, like, regarding the situation in Israel-Palestine with a focus on the media. Um, the reason why kind of, well, the reason I'm, I'm doing this, the reason we're doing this is like, uh, well, I, <laughs> essentially like kind of like we both have a background in politics that we can go into in a minute, but like my specific focus was on, um, basically like politics, media, strategic narratives and the manufacture of consent. So basically how, how the media acts to, um, not necessarily sway politics, but to sway discord in a way that aligns with political viewpoints and um, what I see as basically a sustaining of the status quo. Yeah, so like my my kind of qualification in this comes from a kind of protracted, well, my dissertation basically, which I did on uh, the specifically in that case, the influence on of think tanks and like kind of elite policymaking organizations on um, on the media uh, that was actually focused on kind of the, uh, the well, like, the coverage surrounding, um, coverage surrounding the early, um, the early years of the kind of, like, unfolding Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine situation, uh, and the kind of, from a kind of security perspective. Um, so that's, yeah. So, like, the re yeah, the reason I kind of, like, proposed this initially was because that's kind of my wheelhouse, and I felt like I kind of needed to contribute something to the conversation uh, well, like contribute some kind of like analysis which I felt useful, and this is pretty much the only way I have of doing that. So, hence why I'm here. Uh, and uh, Jonathan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I am a. Yeah, you know, if you've heard me on Weird Signal, I'm a filmmaker uh, primarily, but I have a background in political science. I my undergrad was uh, a political science major with a focus in international relations. Um, I kind of kind of pretentious, but I consider myself uh, uh, an organic intellectual in the you know, kind of Gramscian sense, I guess. But uh, in addition to that, uh, I've, I, I was raised in sort of a, uh, a Christian Zionist household. Uh, my mom's side of the family specifically was uh, this weird Christian Zionist family. So Israel-Palestine has been like, in like my awareness of it has been kind of developed my entire life so i kind of kind of fell into a uh in, into a zone where it's been one of my main political focuses for you know the past 15 plus years so i think uh that that background gives me a certain perspective that i haven't seen a whole lot of so hopefully i can uh you know pr provide some insight i you know yeah and like, I mean, the reason the reason I approached you uh, for context is also because like, you're the one I've seen online kind of engaging most with it. Well, like in my kind of immediate circle, uh, engaging most with this subject, but kind of from a very critical perspective. Like uh, I post like, a lot. Like, you, you post a lot, but it's kind of all. It's it seems like a very very uh, kind of like curated kind of selection of like critical literature as well as uh, right. Kind of, uh, more kind of activist oriented literature, which I mean, there's like, that's a very, there's a very kind of like loose boundary between those things. But yeah, I think also, 
Anyway, um, I think it's also relevant, like, bring up the, the idea of kind of, like, uh, organic intellectuals in the Gramscian sense, because, I mean, that's, um, I don't know, if I mean, I'm sure, like, if the people who find us, who found their way to listening to this conversation are probably kind of aware of, of that term, but it's, like, um, I, I, I don't know, I picked up on that just because, like, that's sort of, like, I don't know if it's necessarily what I consider myself, but it's what I was trying to become by studying <laughs> uh, this particular subject, because it's, it's basically the sense that kind of, like, uh, and also it's, like, very relevant to what we're going to be discussing. It's the idea of, like, become... The, the idea that... Um, yeah, I think it's, it's worth unpacking now. Like, the idea that... Um, what Gramsci posed uh, with the idea of... Well, like, as the context of his idea of the organic intellectual was... Um, was basically what he saw as, like, um, kind of the liberal institutional kind of stranglehold over kind of, like, politics um, being largely a concept, well, you know, as, which precluded, um, precluded the possibility of a communist revolution in kind of, like, Western Europe and America, uh, which is, like, the reason he was doing that. But um, part, of, part of his reasoning was the fact that uh, political... A, a barrier to kind of like bringing in kind of more radical leftist ideas into the political establishment was the fact that uh, there was this kind of like wall of specialism around these institutions and by creating kind of like specialists who uh, well like specifically a wall of specialism that but as a, a specialism that was uh, born of a particular political affiliation um, I mean, this, this is my understanding of, like, kind of I, when I read about this two years ago, but, um, but the fact that it's, like, um, that in order to kind of become a specialist in this context, you essentially what either uh, had to become or were already um, aligned with a particular kind of political ideology, um, which meant that uh, finding a foothold in the institutions for people of a more radical bent was... Um, was was not something immediately possible and therefore the need to kind of develop organic intellectuals was an imperative to kind of to basically kind of like get a functioning uh, get like a, a leftist government that wouldn't die on its ass immediately from, <laughs> uh, uh, from the kind of like I don't know the snake pit of, um, of political political machinations um, which is yeah I, just, I feel like yeah no I, I, I mean I, <laughs> I don't know if you agree that's like kind of my, my yeah no absolutely of kind of like where yeah um so like um i think like before we get onto essentially kind of like just talk through like what we're going to be doing i was going to mainly just like set out what the theoretical basis of how how we're approaching this um was in more detail um but i thought it would be useful first to just kind of like share like what are our impressions of like the the way the media has handled this, but the broader like political discourse that has surrounded the current situation, um, like did you? I mean, what's uh, did you want to start us off? I've got um, I've got I've got like my angles as well. Um, I think the uh, probably the biggest thing I've noticed, and this time around, as opposed to, or I guess I've kind of seen it build over the last handful of uh situations that have kind of popped up over in palestine with you know sheikh jarrah and uh the march of return before that is the uh the popular sentiment has kind of 
started to really shift towards being more critical of Israel, um, you know, a rejection of the notion that criticizing Israel is anti-Semitic, um, the, the, uh, the, the general mood has kind of really shifted the, you know, popular, like, you know, in, uh, you know, watching any kind of like Western media coverage of it, you know, anytime they interview someone, they're, you know, invariably, you know, asking before anything else, you know, do you condemn Hamas? And like a lot of people are kind of rejecting that framing uh, outright in a lot of ways. Um, I think there's, you know, the biggest protests we've seen since the Iraq war. So like popular sentiments really shifted uh, in terms of supporting Palestinian, uh, you know, uh, liberation and the general approach, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, I think the general approach as well of Israel's kind of propaganda, propaganda tactics has been, I, I keep, I keep saying that it's becoming more and more desperate. Like they, they kind of take, you know, they, they make these like really egregious claims that have no, uh, no, no evidential support, no like empirical, you know, they, they've been shown to be manufacturing, uh, you know, evidence in a lot of cases. They, uh, you know, they had, you know, leaflets that are, that a lot of uh, Arabic scholars that they were supposed to have been, you know, Hamas instructions to it, you know, target as many civilians as possible. And, uh, you know, Arabic speakers and Arabic scholars, you know, pointed out that it's, you know, missing a lot of the nuance that a, a native Arab speaker would have written in. So it's, you know, most likely, a, you know, a direct Google Translate kind of situation. So it's like the, the, um, the, the kind of tactics they're using seem like they're almost grasping at straws because that popular support is kind of drifting away. But uh, it, I am very, very reticent to bring him up, but uh, it kind of makes me think of uh, Slavoj Žižek's formulation of ideology where it's like, uh, you know, they know that we know that they're full of shit, but they're, you know, they're still engaged in it anyway because they expect us to engage in it. That's that's, that's yeah. kind of my impression of that's like that's that's not a bad <laughs> it's like not a bad sentiment that's like pretty applicable yeah and like you know like I'm, yeah like I mean it doesn't take a lot of unpacking of any kind of like major political statements to kind of like find <laughs> something the truth in that uh, wherever it occurs <laughs> and like I think like a lot of what we're gonna be like kind of unpacking through this podcast will will sort of like I don't know hopefully touch on like why. Um, why that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think, like, just to kind of, like, bounce off that, like, I think one of the things I've... I think it's, like, I don't know, like, my my impression of it has been just, like, the fact that it's been a lot... I mean, like, this is, like, looking at the kind of like, the Israeli side, the kind of, like, domestic side in the West and in, in the UK and the US and, and, and... I mean, I haven't been a great follower of, like, Canadian media. I get most of my Canadian media takes from you. <laughs> Um, but, um, but, like, the, the impression I get is, like, is the fact that, like, it is kind of, like, the most mask-off, 
um, government that we've seen in a while. I mean, like, just talking... One thing I haven't necessarily seen in in this um, in this kind of present uh, kind of like present unfolding is um, is kind of much harkening back to like the the protest movements um, over the last couple of years in Israel and what that's actually meant because that's that was like a a protest essentially by it was I don't know it's like it was picked up with a certain sense of optimism I feel but it was like very much kind of like the liberal establishment of Israel protesting the the kind of like the the fact that it's like Israel now has like the most kind of like outspokenly far right government right. in in its history and the fact that like and it's you know instituted like judicial changes which have um kind of essentially what a lot of that has resulted in is kind of like eroding the kind of liberal establishment of Israel as this idea of like a kind of like functioning democracy but what is striking about that is the fact that this idea of like Israel as like as a liberal democracy as as a place built on these kind of core some um core kind of like sometimes you know even evoking like socialist values and things that that has never not been a sort of like fig leaf for what is ultimately the inherent like violence of the of the Zionist like settler colonial project right and so like what the people were like protesting for was pretty much like they wanted a return to an Israel that they recognized, but the Israel that they recognized was the same one that um, was responsible for like innumerable, innumerable atrocities, like in the decade, you know, in over like the previous decades, going back to, you know, like the, the conflicts of the 19, well, I guess like 1967 was a kind of tipping point into the kind of the present uh, political, um, like the, uh, the slow kind of like grinding violence of the Israeli state machine. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's not so much like it's, it's sort of desperate as in like, it's, I feel like it's communicating more openly with itself um, because like, it's like, yeah, like even though, you know, even the most kind of like revered like peaceniks like Ariel Sharon and things have like at times just been caught off guard saying like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if if Palestine, if, <laughs> if Gaza just like sank into the sea, I think was the quote. Um, but, but now it's like, yeah, now it's now it's very much avert, and they're kind of. It feels like they're speaking from a position of like kind of, a certain amount of security to say yes, we can we can say these outlandish things because we're galvanizing a base rather than trying to protect, um, protect ourselves from critici- critiques that we've never cared about, um, but yeah, and I don't know, like what I found curious has been the fact that um, the fact that like. I don't know, the way this, at least in the kind of, like, media I've been, like, consuming that and, like, following, um, has, like, addressed... Well, it's it's not so much, like, addressed this, but I feel, like, I mean, there's going to be a lot of me saying, like, I feel blank, uh, <laughs> I feel and, like, thing, because, um, because, like, you know, this is an impression I've got, because, like, as one thing I'm probably go- I'm hopefully going into soon is the fact that, um media analysis to actually establish these trends in, you know, in the kind of the political science of the political economy of media is a, is a long and boring process that takes months and that I've not had like the time or resources <laughs> to actually carry out. But, um, but like, it seems like the coverage has shifted. Not so, there seems to have been a, like a certain dislocation between, um, between the government and the idea of Israel per se. 
like historically kind of um people would have spoken out in support of israel speaking of like you know this active political unit that's pursuing particular goals but the media seems to like now handle like yes they uh the government's been saying some pretty worrying things but uh when we say israel we're talking about the broader concept of the state of israel and the people that live in it rather than the government and um that, I don't know, that seems like that seems to have been like the media's reaction to this um but yeah i think it also yeah um but yeah no i think I think that's like been the main thing that I've among the main things that I've noticed. I mean, like it was kind of entirely predictable that both here and in the U.S., um, the political establishment has pretty much just gone full culture war because that's what it does. Because that's what it seemed to seem to be, you know, seem has seemed to work. Um, and so, like, yeah, like I'm going to be attending a march this Saturday, which has been openly referred to by. Um, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, as, like, a hate march, and as a supposedly entirely antagonistic um, statement that, um, that, like, it happens to uh, coincide with Armistice Day. I don't know if this is covered in, like, the same way in, in Canada, but, like, it's seen as, like, sacred, you know, there's the, the, the refrain of where's your fucking poppy. Yeah, <laughs> Canada's, kind of yeah, it's Remembrance Day in Canada, and it's a very similar, uh, a very similar vibe uh, you know we've got there, there was a really big controversy over here a few years ago about um this uh hockey personality don cherry who was complaining about people not wearing poppies and stuff on a broadcast of hockey night in canada and it caused a huge huge uh shit storm and it's yeah i i like i've yeah, my, my entire, like, the past 20 years, I, you know, ever since I became politically aware, I kind of stopped wearing poppies and have gotten so much shit for it over the years. I kind of <laughs> haven't, but I have seen it elsewhere. I don't know. It's like, uh, well, I know I've been in London. People don't really talk to each other. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, that's actually, that that's, sounds like more extreme than here. I mean, it's like, I don't know. Um... Yeah, so, yeah, this... The media hasn't focused as much on, like, Jeremy Corbyn here as, like, I was expecting as well. That was been a, that's been a, that that's been a thing, because it's, like... Yeah, because it's, like, that is, like, the political reflex of any <laughs> question regarding party politics in the UK is, like, how does Jer How does a guy who hasn't been the Labour leader since 2019... Imp <laughs> you know, um... What has this got to do with him? <laughs> we need an answer. Um... <laughs> But yeah, um, but yeah, it's like uh, it's a lot basically. But uh, I think it's like yeah, we'll we'll get in we'll get more into kind of like the um, the specifics of like what we what's been going on that we picked up on. But uh, yeah, I guess it's we should get into theory um, as as ever. Let's get into <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, so like um, I think we already kind of like I already kind of like foreshadowed some certain parts of this. Uh, it might be at the beginning, but like, what is the manufacture of consent, and like, why are we doing this? Because uh, these questions are pretty much intertwined. Um, and like, my yeah, my angle on it uh, is well, basically, kind of like to the, to answer the first part, what is the manufacture of consent? Well, manufacturing consent is a book that was published in 1988 by scholars named Chomsky and Edward Herman. Uh, Chomsky, like Chomsky, as a figure, I. I don't necessarily like have 
issues with so much as like I don't necessarily know what they represent. However, like you know, if you if you treat different bits of their critique as like useful things without looking at a whole as a whole, yes, they, he can be very useful and informative. Um, I just yeah, I think it's like there's so much that I have never really comprehended what the whole is. Um, but yeah, and Herman, I, I, I don't know that much about beyond this work. Um, but uh, yeah, so what this book posed was like the question of why in uh, kind of democrat, like liberal democracies in like advanced, well, like I think it's like, I guess it's a Foucauldian term, the um, advanced liberal democracies. Um, there's this there's a situation where we have a, a media which is nominally free and independent uh, and has a kind of integrated um, kind of political lean, well, like integrated kind of like belief in um, in kind of moral, a moral integrity to kind of journalistic principles of neutrality and openness and a certain like speaking truth to power. And, um, and like what, yeah, why, why in this context does the media more often than not seem to align with um with with basically the agenda of the government or kind of like elites in corporate or kind of intelligence communities um and yeah and so like the the answer they posed to this was pretty much like in very um materialist terms which was essentially because the like the journalism industry is an industry um is the is the is the crux of it it is as much as it presents itself as some as a kind of quasi like civic institution it does not exist outside of the context of market forces uh and so is susceptible to influence from um kind of economic or political elites um and the kind of like that is just that is like kind of like the the modus operandi well you know the the, the basic kind of principle and the key things that they outlined as to how this functions. I mean, a lot of like the book itself is is occupied with um, with the actual like techniques of you know the the techniques that the like the mainstream media actually like applies in uh, achieving these ends. But um, essentially, like the well, one of one of the key things is the fact that like as an industry, uh, media bodies rely on exclusive content they rely they rely on getting the scoop they rely on getting kind of like the the most accurate or immediate analysis of things and um and also they rely on like basically like they well like as as institutions they need money because like in order to um get this information out there they have to they it requires like significant infrastructure and staffing and so they're kind of susceptible to influence well, they're kind of, like, vulnerable to influence from that direction. Um, there are more specific ways in which, you know, like, um, people in power tend to have exclusive information which they can kind of disseminate and um, and kind of selectively release, uh, which, you know, the uh, the papers have, like, an economic imperative to take up and publicise. Um, but also, more generally, um, the way this works is that um, it's sort of... It's sort of like the 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 more general kind of like uh, impulse is to make the make a, their particular kind of like media body, um, well to to cultivate friendly relations with these figures, uh, to, in order to kind of like 
be insiders in that particular system. Um, but yeah, so that's like, um, we're going to be going and, you know, like I should flag up like at this sense in, in this context, like, yes, this book was written in 1988. Um, and a lot has changed since then, but these kind of core principles, um, are kind of still applicable. It just requires a different kind of analysis, but like one of the things that, um, is flagged up there, which is kind of only accelerated in recent years is the fact that, um, a lot of these kind of like older media bodies used to have a much broader and better staffed kind of foreign correspondent uh, team that um, due to kind of like budget cuts and just the general decline of most things, um, they no longer have. So are, re are more kind of like more actively reliant on um, on kind of private bodies or intelligence services to to get information uh, and and information and analytical work that would traditionally have taken place in-house has now been farmed out um and yeah and so like that's that's one part of it but a thing that um the other thing that they flag up is the fact that when when we talk about like um media being susceptible to influence um it's not necessarily to say that like they're taking instructions from people that they're getting um persuade you know like they're taking orders on what they can and can't say or being given a particular brief. I mean, like, this is, that's not to say they're not at any given time, but um, the reason why it's kind of like sustained itself so long in this, with this kind of like situation, in this situation, is the fact that um, newspapers are kind of in, well, like journalists, journalism per se, it's sort of self censoring in a way that, that's not necessarily active or conscious. In the um, and like the reason for this is because um, journalism as an industry, as a kind of like a community, I guess, is inherently self-selecting, and as such, tends to self-select based on um, political and class affinity. It's basically like yeah, um, journalists become the kind of like trusted client of any given like political body because not because that they you know they take orders but they can because they can be expected to behave in a certain way in response to things that they're there because they they get into positions as journalists because they are already aligned with this kind of like insider uh, insider political consciousness that um that perpetuates itself and so they'll just like you don't even the point is that you don't have to tell them to write a certain way they just can be trusted to um and uh that that itself is like a, is a self-sustaining fact that has continued it's like it's yeah i think i just like quoted in my in my notes it's like get the journalism industry is like a meritocracy in the same way israel is a democracy <laughs> in that it's like in the same way athens was a democracy in that there's a plurality within itself within a tightly kind of like guarded insider community um yeah <laughs> and so yeah so like based on you know based on this uh this idea um it's not that so my you know my kind of um i mean my own kind of like not opposition to journalism because who can who can honestly <laughs> say that like my my somewhat antagonistic approach to journalism generally is um is is based on this is based on the fact that like 
they are... <laughs> they're, I don't want to say, like, they're class enemies, so I should inherit... You know, <laughs> there's a kind of, like, theoretical imperative to question everything they say, but that is more or less the case. And it's like, I don't know, it's... um, They've been a lot more overtly kind of, like... Sh- They've been easier to catch out in other contexts. Uh, they've been a lot more kind of like mask off when they think fewer people are paying attention. Um, whereas in in issue on issues that everyone kind of knows about and has like known about long enough to have a good idea of what's going on, they tend to tread a lot more lightly, which is kind of um, which is sort of something I'm you know what treading lightly looks like is um, is something I want to go into in a minute. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think there were two like well actually I have two caveats. But was there anything you wanted to kind of like add to that? Um, I the only thing I really wanted to, wanted to add to it is um, n- or critique of that. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I'm definitely on board with uh, with that. Um, I wish I had thought of it sooner, like a few days ago, so I could have you know reread. But um, there's actually a um, a, a sort of there's a um a collection that the uh i put it in our in our uh yeah. in our notes actually yeah. the, the propaganda model today from yeah you know i think i might have read this it's um also yeah like, it's, it's, it's part of like uh, five frames are. university of westminster's critical digital and social media studies series yeah. which is like a Jeffrey Klein, yeah, that's a familiar name. Yeah, uh, there's a, a really good, uh, I mean, there are a lot of really good articles in there. Christian Fuchs has a, a good article in there about um, how the propaganda model has kind of adapted to social media. It breaks down, you know, the, uh, the kind of, uh, I think, political, social, and economic uh, aspects of the power. I, I have nothing of real substance to to uh to contribute to it but just wanted to like put that out there that you know there there has been work done to kind of uh evaluate uh you know manufacturing consent in the context of social media and uh you know the the current media landscape mm-hmm. um which we've, we're also doing right now, <laughs> yeah so. yeah but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, to, um, which like yeah was basically my dissertation as well. But yeah, no, that would be something useful to revisit, especially if this I don't know if this becomes like a kind of recurrent thing. Um, but yeah, I guess like um, yeah. So like my two caveats were like yes, yeah, so I'm sort of trash talking journal like <laughs> journalism per se, and a lot of journalists. Um, I should kind of like clarify that by journalists I mean kind of mainstream journalists for you know working for uh, major kind of legacy agencies and not the myriad journalists who are actually doing solid reporting uh, in, like, in... Especially in the field. Especially basically kind of, like, the the various Al Jazeera family... uh, Al Jazeera journalists who have had their families basically assassinated for doing exactly their job. Yeah, they're... they're, they're (laughs) For speaking truth to power in the way that's actually... Yeah. The number I saw today was, like, 39 journalists have been killed so far in in Gaza. It's just... And I think 35 of them were directly in Israeli bombings. So it's, you know, th- th- those those yeah. journalists are doing something very different than, you know, what, you know, someone like Wolf Blitzer is doing right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm taking it for that. <laughs> I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with the name Wolf Blitzer, but like, 
Yeah. Um, definitely more than what I'm... I don't know. I kind of just... I, I ignore, like, GB news and shit out of self-care, but Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, well, I mean, like, what's... what's uh, I don't want to get off track, but one of the interesting things I've seen of it is the fact that, um, like, the Labour Party have been so... You know, the Labour leadership under Kestama has been so closely in step with the US and with, basically, Israel... Um, in defending pretty much everything it's doing and excusing um, them on kind of, like, the same grounds that they're giving is the fact that, like, kind of, like, right-wing newspapers are having to kind of... Well, like, right-wing kind of talking heads are having to kind of, like, question... So pitch questions that they never would have otherwise done because they happen to be talking to, like, the the head of a nominally labour-oriented party. Um, so that's... Yeah, that's that's been weird to see. Um, like, you know, asking, like, so there is, like, this shit going on, do you not condemn this? Um, like, because their first instinct is to take the political opposition to task rather than make any more sense of the world. Um, but, yeah. But, anyway, I guess, like, the other thing, you know, something I should stress is that, like, yeah, um, the kind of the process of manufacturing consent, uh, and I think this is, like, an important thing to kind of just speak to, is the fact that, um, it's a lot more subtle than GB News or Wolf Blitzer or whatever. It's like <laughs> kind of like, even though it's like useful to point to just like the the, the shittiest talking heads um, giving the most kind of like psychopathic nonsense imaginable as like as as me as legitimate media analysis. It's like um, the processes of like political studying like political economy of media is they they go a lot deeper but yeah i guess um yeah so there's that the other thing I, i've got it here in my notes I, I don't i don't know if this necessarily belongs here but it's like worth saying now that i've like interrupted like <laughs> irreparably interrupted the flow of conversation but um there's certain like and i should have probably make, made a shorter version of this but um like I think a question that gets posed to critics of Israel or indeed anyone on the left is like, why are you so focused on Israel? Like there's other injustices happening in the world. There's other, um, there's other genocides happening. There's like, you know, which um, people on the left have also been highlighting <laughs> and making legitimate comparisons between. Um, and like, yeah. And, and this is kind of like usually prefixed with like, well, like, the implicit question is like, are you anti-Semitic or something? Um, but like, I think it's just like, it should be said that like the reason why there is uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the idea of kind of like the challenge to Israel is such a kind of, um, it's such a galvanizing thing. It's such a, it's, I don't know, just a galling thing, uh, what it does is the fact that, um, well, as well as the fact that, you know, like we are, citizens of countries that are actively aiding and abetting everything that it does. Um, act, yeah, and, and, like, normalizing said processes. But also it's it's the fact that, like, uh, from a kind of, like, uh, left-wing perspective, it is essentially kind of, like, it is a living embodiment of the contradiction of global... of, like, the liberal international order as um, sustained by kind of neoliberal capitalism. It's It's the fact that it's... I mean, to give a tiny condensed history of the liberal international order, it's the idea that kind of like, um, off under kind of like U.S. military preponderance, the world 
is moving towards a state of being a self self-regulating thing through kind of like rational institutions um made rational rational in part by the force of the market but also kind of like the spread of democracy and um and the fact that like kind of like any kind of like existing sort of backward forms of government will inevitably be kind of eroded by the perceived quality of life that this um that kind of like western style democracy brings um and and western capitalism brings um and israel pretty much like exists as a living embodiment of the contradiction of that because it's like as well as like espousing all of these like values and presenting itself as like an active well up until until quite recently it's changed significantly under the present like configuration of the Netanyahu government but um as like a kind of like globally connected uh in normalized democratic state um it's uh well like it it's basically showing how how this kind of like ideal principle of global kind of international relations and violence are inherently intertwined and reliant upon one another that like the the kind of like in order to sustain itself as this kind of like democratic ideal it also has it also has to sustain itself through violent subjugation of a native population and um i mean i guess that's the same with america but like it's uh, it's more overt and more kind of like hotter i guess um in a military sense and i think that's actually uh one of the reasons that it's become such a a touchstone of left politics in in the west especially in you know the u.s and canada is that it's you know an active example of the kind of settler colonialism that Canada and the U.S. were built upon. So, you know, we're, we're seeing the process played out, you know, before our eyes. And, you know, we're kind of in, in Canada and the U.S. kind of been going through sort of a reckoning of that past recently, you know, the past decade or so, especially, you know, every, every event will start with a land acknowledgement. Every, you know, there's, I, I saw... I went to um, an event for uh, National Truth and Reconciliation Day uh, when I was back home in St. John's uh, at the beginning of October, and the uh, the MP from St. John's spoke at it, um, and he's you know he he talked about the terrible, very somberly about the you know, the terrible legacy of settler colonialism and you know the terrible things that you know, Canadian settlers did, uh, you know, to the native population that they, uh, they encountered when they came here. And without, without a, a hint of irony, he's, you know, in support of Israel. He's, you know, t- taking trips to Israel on the Israeli government's dime. He, you know, and there, there's this contradiction in, uh, in sort of the the way our governments kind of have been approaching our own colonial histories while completely ignoring, you know, the colonialism taking place in, you know, the occupation of Gaza and the West Bank. And the I, I think it's becoming more and more, um, you know, acute that we're recognizing that not only 
is this process happening again in in Israel and Palestine, but that, you know, our governments have been complicit in it for, you know, for decades and, you know, since, since it started, basically. And I, I think there's more and more pushback coming because of that as well. And, um, you know, I think that's only going to become more and more um, stark as, you know, this current assault on Gaza continues. Yeah. I think um, it's just um, one thing I would just also add to this is the fact that it's like we the concept of like neoconservatism has sort of fallen out of the discourse uh, significant, you know, obviously kind of like it was kind of like nullified over the last decade by kind of like what the Obama um, government putatively stood for. As a kind of as like a sort of like the the rational reasonable replacement to it as the dominant kind of foreign policy ideology, um, the fact that it is now two thousand three again and like we're all we're all listening to new metal again and, um, is sort of I don't know may signal a return at some point, but um, but like that I think is like relevant to bring up just because I mean a lot a lot of the I mean it was you know as a kind of like political doctrine it did have a has a more complex history than this and had like kind of a harder kind of like more kind of tactical or theoretical application but the more extreme kind of like messianic qualities of um of of neoconservatism and in during the bush years um that was kind of um before it was kind of like disgraced itself in iraq as an ideology was um was this Reevaluation of the idea of like the permanent innocence of America, that well, basically the American exception, the idea that like as a state founded, like a state that began as a democracy, it has this kind of like this strange kind of like teleological destiny to bring a particular form. You know, basically it's like kind of like the champion of the Enlightenment, and and it's kind of possible to to see the kind of like the regular invocations of like the romanticized history of what Israel represented as being a kind of essentially operating from a similar playbook, which I hadn't really thought about till now, but it's kind of interesting. But yeah. So should we get back onto the question of framing the, the kind of mechanics of like what we're looking at here? Um, which is, yeah, basically I kind of like outlined in the, in the plan, like I, I said, I, I, I said kind of before that it's kind of, um, understanding media bias and pointing to media bias is is sort of it's a two level thing essentially because you can point to kind of like fox news you can talk you point to kind of like just the shittest point talking head you can find spouting psychotic nonsense and say oh yeah this is like this is what media bias looks like but really kind of like uh, that's like that's a very very crude and ultimately ineffective version of it outside of its own political base because all it really all that really does is galvanize people who have these ideas already in a belligerent defiance of like basic humanity um and like sorry i'm getting a little extreme in my <laughs> but but you know what i mean but yeah i know um but basically like what I see as like kind of the role of kind of elite media in uh, manufacturing consent is operates on people who would generally consider themselves more circumspect. And um, what essentially 
it essentially kind of like operates uh with a with a much kind of like a lighter footing a like in a more kind of subtle and essentially more defensible way uh or elusive way um which can and de- not defensible but so much as deniable way um and that's basically the practice of like establishing and maintaining hegemony um and like discursive hegemony specifically and um this this is basically the idea that you know I summarized in my notes as like it's the idea that kind of um under well like specifically under a kind of like a liberal democratic hegemon a part of its kind of governing ideology is um is open and transparent communication and the idea that like we have we have debate we're having a debate right now um that it's sort of like it can sort of it sustains its own strength by saying look it's like you know um it's not just we're not like we're not shutting down conversation we're facilitating conversation uh, in a way that proves we're right because it's like in the same way, I guess, like, I talked about, like, kind of, like, the meritocracy of journalism above, uh, or, like, before, uh, above in my notes, <laughs> um, like, what we're seeing here is a sort of, essentially, a kind of, like, a free exchange of ideas within a very limited, bounded kind of series of acceptable viewpoints and acceptable kind of processes by which things are done. Um, and that is that is essentially kind of, like, there are you're free to debate things as long as those things don't um, don't transgress on uh, ideas that are like basically unconscionable in a what we see as unconscionable in a kind of moral or practical sense. Um, so like I don't know, like in in I think like yeah when we when we first like discussed this we like we went over like what some of these things are like very often I think the first thing the first thing we hit on was just the fact that um, foreign policy issues are seen as something entirely dislocated from domestic politics that um, kind of essentially introduce when, you know, uh, figures such as kind of like Bernie Sanders or like the squad or something in like in the American context or Jeremy Corbyn or uh, whomever, uh, John McDonnell or whoever in the UK context, um, whenever they spoke about kind of, well, I don't know, their politics was ten- tended to be limited to, um, like, how how can, like, any form of, like, ultimately just, like, very moderate democratic socialism be applied in a domestic context. And at least in the case of Corbyn, um, any talk of, like, foreign policy never really went beyond just general kind of humanitarian platitudes. Um, and this this is based on the sense that um, that like ultimately you know we're free to discuss these things um, within within the scope of like the domestic sphere. However, um, foreign policy is ultimately something you don't touch because it's the preserve of experts. And if you remove a single component or change a single component, we're gonna get nuked by Russia. <laughs> it's like, it's, but that's like a kind of extreme kind of like straw man argument to it. But it is this idea that like, no one outside of the kind of like Beltway security establishment can legitimately comment on matters of security because uh, to change something in any way would endanger um, the security of the nation and threaten kind of U.S. preponderance. Um, and and so it's kind of like yeah. And so like any. 
this is the reason why kind of like Bernie Sanders kind of like foreign policy whenever you did hear about it was pretty much just kind of like an extension of the sort of like well from, from what I remember I need to check up on this but like a kind of like the kind of liberal rational kind of like non-doctrine of um essentially like the candidate Obama rather than the president Obama which transpired a little differently um but yeah so that's that's just kind of like one example of kind of like an unconscionable viewpoint another one is say cutting off military to support to Israel um and what that and like or imposing sanctions on Israel like um because there's the assumption is like to do that to any meaningful extent would just be to um allow it to be destroyed by its still kind of looming and more powerful neighbors that it hasn't normalized security arrangements with in like the last 40 or 50 years um but yeah so that's so that's like how yeah that is basically kind of like political hegemony the hegemony of political discourse and like how does how this translates over into media uh tends to kind of like come with a a number of um follows a number of set patterns um one of which is i mean one of which i already said is like i've, I've kind of like i've just read my list here because i gave these definitions i already touched on this but like a set of identified parties on a rigidly enforced spectrum of technical or moral authority with the capacity to state what is beyond the scope of basically beyond the scope of the listener or reader to question um and you know like i guess like an ex i already gave examples but one example would be like kind of the box when it came to the issue of like culpability in the um i want to make sure i've got the the baptist hospital bombing the first major bombing before it got completely memory hold um by the various hospital bombings that took place well like after that but um the book for like you know establishing culpability ended with like u.s air force intelligence uh seconded by canadian U air force intelligence who actually have no intelligence ga <laughs> like capacity like gathering capacity on their own and pretty much is an extension of the american system that they borrow so that just adds nothing but it was just like yeah like sorry all that footage that doesn't adhere to um to the to the narrative to that narrative and the completely insane israeli kind of like intelligence defense like contrary evidence of that was um with those fucking bizarre fake like of the fakest phone calls you'll ever hear <laughs> that uh, have been um yeah i don't know I'm assuming people are familiar with this, but, like, yeah, it was, like, they were immediately picked apart on, well, the fact that they were, like, a, a cell phone conversation, or, like, a, a mobile phone conversation. <laughs> I don't know who, what audience I'm speaking to here, but, like, yeah, it was, like, an open channel um, in a dialect that is not Palestinian saying things, basically, that sounded very, very scripted so someone very dumb could under could see immediate kind of, like, culpability there. But uh, And they've yeah, actually, yeah, so, uh, so, sorry to interrupt, they actually uh, tried this again, like, yesterday with uh, the uh, bombing of the ambulance convoy that happened, like, last, or earlier this week, I guess. Uh, they released, you know, an alleged phone call in in the exact same way, and, you know, at, at this point, no the one. The same guys. <laughs> yeah. The two most incompetent kind of, like, like foreign volunteers in, like, Hamas just keep, keep fucking up <laughs> um, and have yet to be caught somehow. Um, but, yeah, that, and also, like, they, they walked back the first one just as soon as the news cycle moved on because they completely changed the narrative that, um, I, I, I believe so, but, like, just... Yeah, and I don't 
committed several other hospital bombings around that time. But yeah, so like the so the second one, I guess, second of these these things is like um the enforcement of like hard geopolitical truths, like historically established truths. Uh this is something you see pretty often, it's just like uh, if they're not going, you know, if they're not saying that this whole situation began on October 7th, um, then they say it began with the Romans, or it began in kind of, um, I don't know, like, just basically going, appealing to history and saying, like, oh yeah, just because of where Israel-Palestine is, and because, you know, like, because of some Bible shit, um, <laughs> there's always going to be a fight here, no matter who who's involved, and if neither if neither community were present, somebody else would be having a fight. This, it's not that simple, but it's pretty much, like, it pretty much just, like, yeah, no, that's, it's always going to be a kind of, like, a choke point, in the same way that it's, like, it's like the what is it, the McGovern telegram or whatever the um the one that was just like yeah Russia will always want to expand west Germany want, will always want to expand east this kind of thing, um, and it's like these are some these are not these are not untrue you know like these are not strategic you know these may be things that like are made more likely by the strategic viability of them but they're not like kind of determinist in the way that basically kind of like discredited 19th century geopolitics that like i don't know like the last major adherents were like uh schmidt <laughs> like carl schmidt um have like thrown out for some reason these get brought up as just like kind of why we why we can't stop here <laughs> why why we just you know have to resort to oh dear isn't this bad takes on israel if if we're gonna think say anything at all I'm getting sidetracked, but yeah, the third of these uh, is um, basically unquestioned affinities between political positions and actions and events. So basically, um, someone of a particular ideology will always act in a certain way. It's kind of, it's a kind of looser kind of type of determinism. I forget where, like, what examples I had of that, but they may resurface. But yeah, so um, just to get back on that, so I was talking about about the concept of hegemony and the concept of kind of like keeping um, like keeping the narrative within bounded preconceptions that wouldn't necessarily change the status quo. Um, yeah, actually, no, I think it's necessary to kind of like revisit that point or just like end that point on just, uh, I guess the thing that was actually the first thing that I presented like when when we were in our initial talks about this which is the fact that it's like well why are we talking about framing why are we talking about what is politically unconscionable and it is the fact that um just in the face of like over ten thousand people dead like and our governments governments kind of like dragging their heels on calling for what is ultimately the the bare minimum of like a humane response to the situation which is to call to for a ceasefire um, that, like, I don't know, like, what it, I mean, going back to the idea of, like, why the, the, um, the issue with Israel is so galling is because it, it wouldn't be, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things that it would, like, one immediately questions, uh, such a statement as, like, it would be so easy to, like, take a different stance because, like, everything that is happening now is some is a thing that Western governments are culpable in because they have aided and abetted it for decades, and allowed it to go kind of unpunished, basically. Um, to that, like Israel has just been consistently allowed to act with impunity, 
and it is fulfilling its um, agenda in exactly that fashion. And, um, and like, it basically kind of, like, from just a humane, you know, just from the standpoint of, like, a, what I would consider myself to be a kind of, like, normal feeling human being, it makes absolutely no sense. And the, and the, the fact that this is not a perspective, it's not only a perspective that's not shared by elites, but it's a, it's a, it's a perspective that seems completely unconscionable or even mentionable, um, by, to these parties, that it's like, like, what are we missing? What is, what is being elided from the conversation? And why is, why are such extreme lengths being gone to, to justify what is happening? Um, and justify allowing it to happen. Um, because there are multiple ways that interventions could take place. Um, sanctions being, you know, the lightest of them. But, um, but yeah, so like, you know, that, that, I guess, like, as well as, you know, the focus on the media being, being that, like, essentially kind of like what, what aspect of kind of like discourse and the absence of certain things from the discourse could help us understand what that is. Like why, um, yeah, essentially what are we not getting? What kind of like geopolitical underpinning, uh, is requiring, um, these governments to maintain a status quo. Um, but yeah, I guess, um, I am going back and forth a lot in this. Like I was like, yeah, to, just to get back on the kind of like theoretical point. Um, maybe I can just like move that to earlier on in the recording or something. Um, but yeah. So like the question of framing. So we were talking about hegemony, uh, and the acceptable kind of viewpoints that are held, like how are, how are these kind of acceptable viewpoints in, well, how are these boundaries enforced in a way that's it falls short of actually just saying it? And um, this is where the, this, the practice of framing comes in. Framing um, being basically, fr yeah, essentially framing, like surrounding new information with context, with like older contextual information in order to sway interpretation in a particular direction. Um, but on a, you know, that's the immediate definition of it, but in, as an act, what it tends to kind of like, what it tends to do is contribute to a sense of an order. So an, an order being a kind of, um, uh, basically just a, a reality statement about how the world is and works, um, both as a kind of like, um, both on a kind of like technical political logic, but also uh, appealing to a kind of like higher kind of moral logic. Um, and like this is like tied in with what is often referred to as a kind of like a geopolitical imaginary. So like how uh, a particular nation and its politics and its history figure into this broader idea of a rational world if they'd only give us a chance to enact it. Um, and so kind of like yeah, so when we're looking for frames, what we're essentially looking for is how, is what sense of order is being created, uh, who is being given kind of like the authority to speak and the kind of, um, yeah, who who is allowed to speak and but also kind of like who is, who should be trusted and who are the legitimate parties and what are legitimate issues, what are legitimate grievances and what are non-legitimate standpoints uh for whatever reason um so yeah so like 
that is that is the process of framing that brings us up to um the very present of kind of like how is uh the situation in israel and palestine being framed as we speak which we already kind of touched on but uh yeah that is that is that is what the podcast that is uh that is our <laughs> theoretical standpoint well that's my theoretical standpoint that um i've brought in Jonathan to discuss. <laughs> um, I need to let the cat out of my room. <laughs> does this from time to time. But so we were talking just now about like the concept of framing and the kind of like the subtle, almost kind of like uh, insidious or kind of like I don't know, very very kind of like the yeah the the subtle, the quiet, the the light touch approach to kind of like world building and the kind of inherent manufacture of consent um that comes with it because it's sort of like uh within the world that you kind of intellectually like create uh certain kind of actions are uh, permissible or indeed um necessary or it's like all kind of like oh become the only thing that's permissible within within the boundaries of this i'm, I'm drifting but um basically yeah so like um i just wanted to talk like i guess maybe to give like some examples of like historically how this has happened like well like how this has happened in coverage of um kind of like um israeli-palestinian um conflicts uh i mean like i guess the main one being the fact that i just called it an israeli-palestinian conflict and not um the zionist project's like 75 year war on the people of palestine because um that's you know that is that is what we're talking about when we're you know when we're talking about like the well, what the media is typically calling, like, the Israel-Hamas war, which inherently makes everyone a kind of, um, everyone, basically all the civilians killed are kind of, like, collateral and purely unintentional, but I'm, yeah, that's, I mean, this, this is not new information, I'm sure, to many of you, but, um, I guess, like, the main one that we see, which, like, I don't think I've necessarily, I think, like, people have be become too wary to, like, talk about it, um, in the present context but it's definitely been like a thing that like surface that like basically kind of like during like quote-unquote peacetime um the thing the the narrative that surfaces like during kind of like usually kind of like uh more general like think pieces rather than actual reporting um to that's used to describe um the conflict is basically the kind of like a cycle of violence and there are kind of like different iterations of this they'll talk about kind of like the latest round of conflicts in a series of conflicts and um this is kind of like i don't know i i bring this up as kind of it's not like necessarily the main one but it is probably the most insidious and probably the most damaging of all the kind of like lazy go-to framings that um the mainstream media tends to go for in these contexts and um the reason why it's like it's manifold it's i guess it's like worth bringing up in this like straight up because it's an easy one to pull apart but um basically kind of like just on a purely syntactical level calling something a cycle of violence implies that it has no point of origin it is a thing that simply happens uh and erases kind of like erases context basically it it means it's sort of it's just a thing that's happening and um and not and essentially kind of like not a thing that anyone had any part in it's just simply put upon unwilling actors to kind of like react one way or another um and usually in the more kind of like sympath more sympathetically this is like applied to like the israeli side but like yeah so the the main problems of this is like yeah first and foremost um 
the idea of it being a cycle is factually misleading because by claiming it's part of a cycle, it means that it's, well, basically kind of like um, ignoring the fact that this isn't a cycle. It's like an extremely linear process uh, that has been happening over like, well, if you want to date it, like, you know, since the origins, the origins of like kind of like Zionism as a kind of settler colonial movement its end point has always been the permanent expulsion or like subjugation if not expulsion but preferably expulsion just because it's like then they don't have like a pop you know population that they have to deal with within their own borders um of you know just displacing the palestinians we saw this in the nakba in um in the 1948 kind of like seizure of um, large territories we saw this you know kind of expanded over over several periods but kind of the present like iteration of this process um is is like probably 1967 onwards when it um when it stopped be well actually no 19 is it 1973 the kind of like the the Yom Kippur war rather than the six day war uh where it no longer became viable to for like surrounding states to kind of like um basically um take take out Israel because they now had the backing of the United States and were too military, militarily strong, even with the kind of assistance of the Soviet Union. But yeah, um, it kind of like, it started the kind of like hardening of the process. And, um, and we've seen this kind of like, you know, cutting forward several decades. Um, we've seen just kind of the, the slower process of like settlement building. Um, and yeah, like basically, yeah, it's like, it's not a cycle. It's it's got a definite endpoint and a definite start point, and every time everything we've witnessed in this like every every round of violence has been just another incremental shift forward in that objective. Um, I think also like this is a point that was raised by um, Akram Salhab on the Truanon podcast, uh, which has some very solid stuff on it, even though it is very silly. Um, but um, <laughs> at times, I mean, it's like the, the podcasting generally, it's like, you know, I had my reservations about podcasting, but it's all I know how to do. Um, but yeah, like uh, Akram Salhab uh, pointed out that it's like, well, emphasized that uh, what needs to, what any kind of analysis of Israel should factor in is the fact that Every any time it does anything, it is pushing the limits of what is possible, um, like what is what it can get away with without kind of eventually some sort of response from from its backers uh, to make it stand down, but never but like it's always fall short of trying to get it to reverse any steps it's taken. Um, you know those that it's able to reverse, which hasn't been the wholesale slaughter of civilians, like we saw in the kind of twenty eighteen March of Return, um, but like. Basically, it's like it is testing, testing the limits, seeing what it can do. But crucially, I think, like, what has defined its advances in its various actions has not been, um, because you know, like, I think yeah, what's what's defined its actions has been basically kind of like what it's able to do, um, at any given time, and it's always been the kind of the limit of what it's able to do, been able to do. Like we've. And in, in many cases, this has been kind of an escalation. Like, if we if we want to just point to kind of, like, the the concentrations of killing and the kind of, like, indiscriminacy of the violence, um, pet, like, meted out by the IDF, um, we can see what's going on at the moment as the logical follow-on to... Um, to the 19, you know, the, 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 the 2014 war, the 2014 operation. 
um, which, you know, didn't go as far as a full-on kind of, like, um, occupation, but, um, but, you know, it's, it did involve a, a ground operation, and this is, you know, and I think, um, the, 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 the just wholesale violence of the, um, suppression of the March of Return was, like, kind of foreshadowing the kind of indiscriminacy, and the kind of just, like, ultimately the genocidal bent of the violence, that it, it's been gradually kind of, like, uh, shedding the kind of like strategic, um, the strategic kind of like rationale that it puts out. Um, even though it's you know it's still doing that, it's just like doesn't really seem to. If it, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, but it doesn't really seem to like matter as much uh, why it's doing it. It is just doing these things. Um, but like I think we can even look to kind of like the fact that like yeah, Hillary Clinton famously pointing out it's like hey well you know culpability is on the Gazans because, you know, Israel pulled out of Gaza, if you'll remember. They stopped doing the settlements and stuff, and, you know, they were they were trying to put the ball in their court to make peace, obviously. It's like, and that failed because the Palestinians don't want peace or whatever. Yeah, that's absolute just, like, lib shit bullshit. But, um, but, yeah, basically it's, like, kind of, like, that was that was not a kind of, that was not necessarily a setback because it was, like, what it was just kind of, like, the strategically most useful thing to do at the time in pursuing its ultimate goal, because um, that led to the um, the elect led to the kind of like Hamas taking power in an election. But Hamas, of course, was a movement that was um, cultivated in the early days by the Israelis, and essentially, like what we're seeing now, is blowback because because um, Hamas was ultimately always the preferable form of government to. Um, to uh, you know the socialist um plo um because it's like basically it's like um yeah it was uh, is that you know in islam you know cultivating kind of like what is essentially an extremist islamist faction as a kind of like solution to the ultimately kind of like morally more threatening force of um of a kind of like well like socialist kind of like people's front is is yeah it was in it does seem to have been part of Israel's plan in this context, but yeah, but um, but anyway, yeah. So it's like kind of what I'm saying is like it's linear. Sometimes it takes different directions, but ultimately, I think kind of like the withdrawal was a political decision based on what they were able to do as a, at the time, and the kind of reoccupation, which seems to be what they're pushing for now, is also now what they're able to do. And it's um, yeah, it's it's not. It's not a neutral cycle to get back to the point, but yeah. So, the other thing about like the 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 second of the three major points. This one's a bit shorter, but um, yeah. Essentially, it's like it diminishes culpability and and going back on that whole like kind of like geopolitical logic of it. This idea that the narrative is kind of like pure victimization or inevitability, and that this somehow this flare-up in violence wasn't somehow a direct consequence of Israel's actions in building settlements and killing civilians and basically imposing a siege which, you know, has existed for over a decade now. It's not like, you know, just because they don't have, like, tanks or whatever surrounding Gaza City doesn't mean it wasn't under siege before. They were controlling the borders and pretty much controlling everything. It wasn't, yeah, basically it wasn't like a state within a state. It was an apartheid regime characterized by daily violence uh but that's erased by the fact that like no actually this just began on october 7th and there was no 
everything up until that point is like history and doesn't affect this current context. But yeah, and and the third is, um, I guess like kind of like one of the things, the main things we're pushing at in this podcast is the excusing of Western culpability. Um, the fact that basically kind of like any kind of like past failures on the part of um, of successive like US presidents or whatever. Um, pretty much like whenever these are like brought up in the context of like political discourse or like this is a popular media narrative, this these are often invoked like, oh yeah, the Camp David Accords fell through, Clinton, uh, Bush first, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, and the kind of, and the kind of proposal of a two-state solution that was then immediately kind of like invalidated by Israel's actions because it never really meant to go along with the plan. Anyway, um, this is like, these are brought up as just kind of like a drifting point. It's like, oh yeah, we tried this before. And pretty much the only purpose these invocations ever seem to serve is to dismiss the possibility of like trying again from a particular direction in earnest or, you know, or, you know, under different circumstances that were not possible at the time for whatever reason. Um, and like, yeah, this is basically, I don't know, like, um, they, they will kind of like invoke the two state solution pretty, pretty frequently. But like, one thing I've never heard in, well, like, I've not heard in any of the kind of discourse outside of like leftist circles is the idea of like, what about a one state solution where they just like have a um, non non-denominational secular democracy and end the apartheid and have a kind of like painful process of reconciliation if it means peace which is not without historical precedent um but you know but even if you know it's like a comparison could be made to like the abolition of slavery and it's like yes maybe it's like a historic injustice that yes the slave owners were essentially paid off and they settled it on economic terms but that was ultimately better than a continuation of slavery indefinitely um but, sorry it's like becoming less becoming more and more kind of hyperbolic as, uh, as this goes on but um yeah um but yeah so i guess that's like kind of the more general frames um yeah i think like i was just like listening back a bit to the thing and i think one thing i should say to kind of qualify where i left off or where i kind of like wrapped up before which was the point about um, kind of why Hamas were, I mean, like, people, I think if, actually, yeah, people might not be aware, uh, it's worth, worth kind of articulating just kind of, like, why Hamas is a preferable form of government to, um, to, uh, to the PLO or to any kind of, like, kind of socialist or even, like, liberal or whatever, like, any other form of government that, um, could have potentially come to power in the, um, in the in Gaza and in, well, yeah, in in Gaza or indeed in the West Bank and uh, I mean it's like kind of obviously kind of under the present circumstances like historically um, sort of uh, socialist causes have uh, tended to be the most uh, you know like a powerful at, at their most powerful in such situations as that and so you know, this was the the origins of the PLO but like. Yeah, basically, I mean, uh, to, to just clarify my remarks there, one, it, so it, like, drove a wedge between, um, between Fatah and Hamas, you know, which is, like, Fatah being the kind of, like, the legacy of, like, the earlier, um, earlier Palestinian kind of, like, state movements, and essentially, yeah, so it's, like, kind of, like, 
on a certain level, it's kind of like immediate political implications were to um, to kind of like fragment um, any collective drive towards Palestinian statehood. Uh, but the other one was obviously to, well, basically as like a kind of like is Islamic, you know, as a as a, as an Islamist government, uh, it immediately uh, aligned it against the U.S. and aligned it with uh, the people who, with whom the U.S. was having the most kind of you know the U.S.'s present focal point of like national security concerns, which is like well was at the time like Iran um, and like still kind of on and off has been, but it's like yeah Iran is is was kind of like the main kind of like the main focal point of like security discussions in the US and by kind of like facilitating Hamas coming to power, um, it put, placed a significant part of the Palestinians, uh, of Palestinian society uh, in a kind of, in the political sphere of Iran. Um, but also um, it's just like kind of, it's an extreme form of government and it kind of allowed them to perpetuate the narrative that has worked so long so well for so long for them which is this idea that like uh we're a kind of rational liberal democracy facing against a kind of like a fundamentally irrational um an irrational kind of like political force we whose goals you can't can't be reconciled with our own and therefore justifying pretty much every you know like in in at least in their eyes kind of justifying the um the the very extreme version of kind of uh like orientalism like what basically what um what netanyahu well like what israel like kind of posted and that like the, the remark made by netanyahu i believe and which was then kind of like not retracted but just kind of deleted about like kind of like it's civilization versus the war of the jung law of the jungle and it's uh yeah it's, yeah, the, it's like it's the children of light yeah. versus the children of dark kind of yeah yeah it sort of it made it a lot less complicated a lot less complicated for them because it's like uh it meant that they didn't have to debate them basically yeah. um and gave them license to do, do well as what we've seen unfold um but um, yeah, I guess, like, um, to pick up kind of where we were going with that, like, obviously, I think we, we framed it earlier, like, yeah, there's, um, manufacturing consent was 30 years, 35 years ago, Jesus, um, and, um, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, whenever it's like, something is like the same age as me, it's like, <laughs> oh, this was ages ago, it's like, ah, oh, fuck, um, but, um, but yeah, like, um, the historical moment has kind of like moved on the ma- the the medium has moved on quite a lot and uh i guess like maybe this can be for like another episode because i think we discussed it's like we're gonna revisit this this is this is opening moves basically but like yeah what um what like framing things are we seeing in this immediate context um um i guess like one of the main things that i kind of picked up on uh because i think it's like what we what we're going to be presenting from this point until like you know for the next like I, I guess like half an hour or so like is uh is mostly kind of like questions rather than kind of fleshed out kind of arguments but um but one of the th- and like questions that we will kind of be returning to possibly hopefully um and yeah so I guess like the, the one of the main things I flagged up in the notes is the fact that like we have actually seen 
development of Israeli media strategy um, to accommodate the current media ecosystem that we exist within, uh, which is um, basically, and like, I've actually, like, there's a growing body of literature about this, actually, some of which uh, from Israeli sources, in fact, where um, I can cite it in the notes or whatever, but it was uh, basically, it was essentially based on um, research conducted, which interviewed various kind of military and political figures uh, in Israel, but... um, how basically there was a kind of strategic move between uh, Operation Cast Lead, which was the 2008-2009 conflict, and uh, Operation Pillar of Defense, which historically got overshadowed by the 2014 conflict, uh, which I believe was called Protective Edge. Um, But that was in 2012, and that was like where they started kind of basically kind of modifying kind of strategic doctrines to try and... Yeah, there it is. Um, To try and... um, To accommodate basically what was becoming apparent that it was like, you know, a more open, uh, less centralized media ecosystem. Because this was, you know, post, not immediately post Arab Spring, but quite soon after it. Uh, that was like kind of 2010, 2011. And, um, and it was when kind of like people were able to kind of, I don't know, the official, the, or like the official narrative or whatever, like didn't always align with like what people were information that people were immediately able to access and then process accordingly this was then kind of like open source intelligence was coming into its own which um has been kind of i don't know i would say to some extent hijacked but that's for another another discussion um but yeah so like basically it's like it's not sophisticated what they did but like what they essentially started doing was making sure that there was something like a kind of like tolerable period in which it was se- they were seen to be the ones under attack before they were able to kind of like fully ramp up their like offensives and um and basically like make sure that the oh in kind of just like i mean it's a kind of like a kind of acceleration of what they'd already done but kind of like real time kind of ramp up the um like yeah track in real time like how much the narrative had shifted to them as victims uh before framing this as the justification for what it was inevitably kind of disproportionate military retribution, which um, which is kind of like, I don't know, was happening from kind of day one in this case, because um, it, this this latest round happened to follow on from a uh, just inordinately, unexpectedly successful Hamas operation on October 7th, which, um, which meant that they could like pretty much like frame it as like frame it as like kind of victimization rather than kind of security failures which or security and intelligence failures which um was like the kind of um a narrative that they were definitely eager to play down i think at that point but um but yeah i don't know like uh, yeah sorry i think i've trailed off there but yeah a very basic point yeah they're adapting um i guess what else is there to say like um I think, I don't know, there's, um, actually, yeah, I'm not sure, um, I guess, yeah, like, maybe we could just sort of, I think maybe it's, like, would just be useful to just go through kind of, like, things that I kind of want to zero in on, but don't necessarily have, um, a kind of fixed, um, kind of conclusion on myself at this point, um, so kind of, like, what the, I mean, there's kind of obvious kind of, like, uh, points coming out of the framing, like, um, especially kind of like termin- terminology ones like the kind of unclarity of like what a ceasefire would 
constitute and um and also kind of like yeah the question of like endpoints being a very kind of like a vague one um but also i think um i think like let's see like <clears throat> i think one of the things that's kind of striking is like well i don't know a thing that we can discuss God, I realize I'm actually kind of like, this is where things are starting, starting to fall apart. But like, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, get, I know. Maybe we should just like move on to a kind of like something that we can wrap this up with. But um, but yeah, I think for further discussion, I want to revisit kind of like, maybe, actually no, maybe this is actually something we were talking about before coming on the recording. But like, um, a useful point was like kind of, I know this is the first, um, the first like of these kind of conflicts that I'd witnessed unfolding after finishing my dissertation, and like uh, being, you know, having that kind of lens. One of the things I tuned into was the fact that like the narrative from October seventh was one that's like shifted dramatically several times over, um, and I think it's like basically kind of like alternated as. Um, pretty much like kind of alternated as like the body count rose pretty much because it was like the very first um description or the very first kind of like narrative and the very you know the very first set of assumptions that were presented um in the media centered around like iran like that that was the immediate go-to there um and like pretty much like day one people were saying oh yeah it's because of like impending kind of like normal the impending kind of normalization of diplomatic relations between saudi arabia and iran and 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 israel um and that it was iran who instigated the attacks um because as a way of kind of upsetting that and maintaining a kind of um a state of disorder in which it was able to continue its shadow war basically um and like as it's as it's gone on, it's like kind of well the the involvement of Iran has kind of like trailed off, or at least discussion around like the involvement of Iran has like significantly diminished. Um, but um, but yeah, it did it did shift from that point to um, to more just kind of discussions around um, just the 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 ruthless. Well, yeah, it it became more. Actually, no, that, this is something I want to pick up and something I think, like, should... is something that I want to kind of, like, revisit uh, to do some kind of, like, quantitative and qualitative assessment of. But the kind of... the agency of um, Hamas is kind of an interesting kind of uh, focal point in this context because it went from... Like, I think it's, like, as the kind of, like, you know, extent of the damage done during the attacks... Uh, became more and more apparent um the focus shifted from that initially kind of like strategic outline to basically just um statements that like they are well just kind of something which was pretty much aligned with the israeli narrative which is like that they're irrational savages and that this is just simply what they do if they're allowed in proximity of israeli citizens um and yeah and i think it's like those, I don't know, I saw, like, kind of, like, early analysis which, like, flagged up the fact that, like, there were consequences besides just pure damage, pure mayhem, which was, like, you know, which is now stipulated as, like, 
the sole end point of the attacks. One of part of which was the kind of like disrupting the normalizations um, diplomatically with Saudi Arabia, but also uh, just to kind of like discredit the security forces um, with the specific with the specific intention of like um, basically like. Uh, curtailing the settlement process because like a huge part of like uh the settlement movement which has been one of the most kind of damaging things to the um to like you know an ultimate like palestinian endpoint um has been just like this the kind of like seizure of seizure of land using civilians as kind of placeholders but then like their presence immediately incurring a kind of military presence and now it's kind of now that's I know, early on there were sort of reports of, like, just um, large kind of, I don't know, people absenting settlements and things simply because it was, like, the the, the illusion that the secu- they, they would be safe at all times because of the presence of the security forces was shown to be um, untrue. And so that's, like, that is a material consequence that goes beyond just vengeance or irrational vengeance or, or kind of some other form of irrational impulse and i don't know it's like my my thoughts on like you know the implications of that haven't really um finalized but like that is that is something of interest because that is a narrative that i've just seen sort of evaporate right uh, and i think i think that the narrative of that like the the narrative of you know hamas being an irrational actor that just wants to you know, engage in violence for the sake of violence against, you know, a Jewish population or whatever, completely kind of empties the, uh, like, any sort of, not just Hamas, but any sort of Palestinian resistance movement at all, because, you know, the the, uh, attacks on October 7th, by all accounts, were, you know, Hamas, along with other resistance groups, it wasn't just... Hamas, uh, and it kind of uh, empties all of those of any kind of political content. Uh, it, you know, it just takes away any. You know, it, it, it's really similar to the way um, you know, nine eleven was framed. You know, back in two thousand one, it's you know they hate freedom or whatever. You know, nonsense, yeah, and it, like it, you know, completely ignores any kind of grievance or like political statements, political content in you know both the establishment of, you know, these groups or, you know, the actions that they, you know, carry out as, you know, an organized group. So I think, and I think that's beneficial to, you know, the narrative for Israel to, you know, completely elide the the notion that there is any kind of political content there. It also kind of like, uh, going back to like what I was talking about earlier with the 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 immediate kind of like domestic political reaction in the UK and the US is to kind of like is basically to well this is actually yeah one of the one of the kind of like framing tendencies uh that I flagged up earlier but didn't give an example of but like an example is that like the idea of a Palestinian liberation uh is now kind of like that has been tied together with the idea that like that implicitly it's it's like a zero sum game it's like any any gain in freedom or autonomy for palestinians automatically means the kind of displacement or murder of like the now present jewish population exactly um and like and that like 
the mo that like the most moderate, the most kind of like that like the, the 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 very concept of a kind of like you know a noble reconciliation with the with the oppressor in exchange for um freedom and land you know <laughs> um and like a reverse any kind of like reversal of the long process of colonization is it's it's going back to just kind of like i don't know like i mean i, br I brought up kind of like the abolition of slavery and the kind of discourse that followed that of like no we're going to have a kind of we're going to have a kind of like you know savage reprisal thing that like didn't you know just that's not how it went they um and it's like maybe people who've lived on well, yeah i think this is a point that i just saw um i saw it just in a post but it seems to resonate now it's just like maybe people like recovering from oppression will have more like better things to do with their time and newfound <laughs> freedoms than exacting historical kind of indiscriminate revenge but that is the unspoken end point that um is implicit in like in, in in the kind of like extreme kind of like fascistic like um gut rhetoric of the current netanyahu government but is also just kind of is implicit in kind of you know everything that's pretty much come out of Keir Starmer or, or biden um for that matter like this is just like and it's it, it echoes kind of underlying orientalism yeah and yeah. It, it it echoes like you know here in canada there's been a big uh, movement of indigenous voices, first nations, you know, uh, like demanding land back, you know, it's the, the big slogan is land back. And, you know, a lot of really disingenuous, like even fucking what I would call stress, right? Weirdos on the left have, you know, kind of taken this as like a call for a for like you know some kind of fucking white genocide or you know some some equally like paranoid nonsense that like you know the 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 notion is they expect you know the violent tendencies of you know the settler colonial projects or whatever are you know in inherent, I guess, to to human nature. So any reversal of that would also require, you know, a violent expulsion of people rather than, you know, the extension of, you know, rights and access to resources and so on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fucked. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I don't know. That's like, um... I think it's like, like, this feels like a kind of good point to end on, because a lot of what we've been talking about has been, um, like, basically kind of, like, under the sheen of kind of, like, liberal plurality in the media, what are the kind of, like, unconscionable, unspoken ideas that, um, that just never make it into the discourse, uh, and in their absence is, uh, just kind of, like, torturous justification process for basically genocide and um and this is like yeah so yeah <laughs> um i think i yeah i think we, we can tell that off there so this yeah. has been we kind of didn't give this podcast a name because <laughs> i it felt too i don't know it's like as i said it's like this is this is i was planning to do just this as like a blog or something but the only medium i'm really that comfortable operating in with is with it with is with podcasts so this is just a conversation about the media and manufacturing consent and 
and one we're going to revisit with more stuff. Um, like, so yeah, I think like the next things, the next moves are going to be like, we'll pick some particular angles or issues and d take a much more kind of like structured approach to actually unpicking those. Uh, so yeah, so that's, that's future things. Um, cool. All right. Well, again, again, it's like very difficult to kind of like feel comfortable. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, this is, this is a, if this were weird signal, this is where I'd be doing my kind of like sign off of like, keep it weird <laughs> signal, signal, but that just feels deeply inappropriate. So, but I have nothing prepared. Um, so yeah, um, go to a protest on Saturday. <laughs> that's, cause that's it. Um, block some ports. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, 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 like, disrupt your local arms manufacturer. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Like, use whatever media channels you can to, you know, like, I don't know, get, get the shit out there. But, oh, God, I'm tired. I'm very tired. Um, but, yeah, let's, all right, let's wrap this up. But, yeah, it's been it's been good chatting. Yeah, looking forward to the next one. Tight. Yeah, same. All right. Uh, cool. Okay.